Hello and welcome back to Braindom. So this week we have Innes Cuthall on the show and Innes is a researcher and a lecturer at the University of Bristol. He uh, is particularly interested in the behavioural ecology and specifically camouflage and how camouflage evolves in reaction to visual systems of other animals. So for example, how prey camouflage might evolve in response to predators. Um, so we're very lucky to have him on the show and he's a very interesting and kind, generous man to come on. And um, yeah, so I hope you enjoy this episode and we look forward to hearing what's to come. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Brain Dump. This is a podcast where we talk about life from the meaningful to the So uh, thanks, Innes. Thanks for coming on the show. Really, really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Happy um, to be here. Yeah. Um, so when did you first become interested in biology? Well, I guess from a very young age, I was always keen on animals and, and nature. Um, my father, although he, he worked in the city as a banker, was, was a great lover of the countryside and nature. So we'd always gone family holidays to Scotland and uh, watching wildlife was part of the fun but um, probably got more serious interest around about the age of 12 reading a couple of books one was Zoo Quest to Guyana by David Attenborough and of course he's still inspiring generations of biologists Mm. Um, and uh, also The Silent World by Jacques Cousteau so I think that's when I really started to understand that there, that there was a, a career path as a biologist or, or zoologist. Mm. And where did you study at university? Uh, I did my first degree at, at Cambridge. So I did natural sciences, specialising in zoology in the final year, um, where actually getting some second year lectures from, from Nick Davis is, was the moment when I thought, Right, behavioural ecology, that's the type of biology I'd, I'd like to do. Mm. What made you and when did you decide to pursue academia? Um, I didn't really have a plan B. I, <laughs> I knew I wanted to study animals in their natural habitat. So I think probably around the age of 14 or 15, first of all, I decided I didn't want to be a vet because vets only get to see sick animals, (laughs) which uh, would be a bit depressing. Mm. Uh, And then, although I had a strong interest in marine biology, I thought, well, maybe if I lived in Australia, that would be great fun. But working in Britain, I'd probably just end up counting ever-declining cod numbers in the North (laughs) Sea. So uh, that moved me away from marine biology. And I think something I I, I say to prospective students at Open Days today is uh, it's much better to do a more general biology degree first mm. because then there's a greater chance that you'll happen upon the particular area which which interests you and you really find your own niche so in my case that that was behavioral ecology studying why animals do what they do mm. so in terms of a career if I hadn't been able to go on and do a PhD uh, and then secure a lectureship I'm not really sure what I'd have done instead. Yeah, interesting, interesting. And, and how did you find yourself at Bristol University? Okay, so um, after my PhD, which, which I'd 
did in Oxford with, with John Krebs on foraging behaviour in birds, um, I was lucky enough to secure uh, a sort of fixed contract lectureship and a, a college fellowship, which would have lasted up to six years. But four years into that, there was a lectureship advertised at Bristol, and I thought it'd be very unlikely that uh, another job as good as that would come up mm. before I ran out of money. So <laughs> I, I applied for it, um, even though I only actually knew one person in Bristol, who was John McNamara in the maths department, who's a theoretical behavioral and evolutionary biologist. Still, Bristol had a great reputation. Mm. And um, since moving here, of course, I've grown to love the city and can't really think of any better place to work. Yeah, no, 100%. I, I fall in love with Bristol and as, you know, I'm trying to live here after uni just because it's, you know, such an incredible place. Mm. Um, so you mentioned you were looking at foraging behaviour in birds. Is that, is that for your first PhD? Yes. So that was my PhD. It was very much testing really economic models of where to feed and for how long. Um, that, that was an area of sort of intense research at, at the time. But since then, I've moved through various areas of behavioral ecology so i then moved to working on on biparental care in birds and what leads to a you like a stable relationship to parents cooperating feeding their young mm. then for a while i worked on fat storage and body mass regulation uh, in animals and um, if you like the ecological costs of being fat rather than obesity as a pathological condition yeah fat can be very useful to a small animal like a bird in winter mm. but of course it carries costs in terms of making you less maneuverable and able to escape for, from predators so that research was really to understand why birds change the amount of, of fat they store throughout the year and are actually fattest at the time of year when food is most scarce Okay. which sounds a bit odd from a dieting perspective, mm. but in terms of um, the adaptive value of fat storage makes a lot of sense. And after that, then I started to get an interest in animal coloration, and that's very much been my main area of research for the last couple of decades, really. Yeah, I was, I was about to say, you're, you're very famous for your camouflage attire around the university. So what... What brought you into wanting to study camouflage and sort of coloration in animals? Okay, I, I started to work on animal coloration back in the early 90s, and that was really a, a collaboration with a guy who was a, a postdoc in Oxford at the time, Andy Bennett. And we were discussing how bird color vision is very different from that of humans. So, mm. really, if we want to understand signaling and coloration in animals we should study them from the perspective of what they see rather than what we see uh, and i fairly recently moved to bristol then and it so happened that here one of the other lecturers julian partridge was an expert on visual physiology and had worked on bird vision so it was a nice combination of circumstances of uh, having the interdisciplinary expertise to understand how the visual system of birds works, coupled with an interest in, in what use colour is in their natural environment. Back then, it was mainly to do with, with um, conspicuous signals, particularly mating signals, because sexual selection was a very 
active area of research then, still is mm. to this day. Um, I started work on camouflage really because I thought, well, everyone is working on conspicuous signals for mating. Mm. How about working on the opposite, which is being inconspicuous? Uh, but many of the same principles apply in that for camouflage, again, what really matters is not the colors that we see or even the colors that are a physicist might measure in terms of the spectrum of light coming from an object. It's how those colors are perceived by another individual. In mm. this case, the animal you're hiding from, which many of the classic examples of camouflage in nature are, are insects. Um, and they're mainly hiding from bird predators. So once again, bird, bird color vision becomes important. And how do you go about sort of testing and you know investigating these systems okay well from the color vision perspective you can do it in various ways so i, I mentioned my, my colleague julian partridge one can actually look at the uh, the receptors in the retina of a bird's eye and determine what wavelengths of light they're sensitive to one can do the neurobiology and see how the brain compares the signals of, of different light-sensitive cells. My own research is primarily behavioral, so that consists of, of designing perhaps artificial prey with different types of colour patterns, but designed in a way that the colours are right for a bird rather than for mm, us. Yeah. So in terms of camouflage, it's quite easy to make artificial moths or caterpillars and vary their colors and see how that affects their detectability um, to wild birds in in the field um, i mean a lot a lot of people who, who who study visual behavior might think doing experiments in the real world is very messy because you can't control the lighting conditions there's all sorts of different species of birds and other predators but in the end if camouflage is to be effective, it's got to work in, in that real-world setting. Mm. So I think it's nice to combine closely controlled experiments in the lab and measurements that you can make of the light coming from objects with a bit of maybe computer modeling as well, but combine those with experiments done out in the natural world with, with real wild predators. Yes, yeah, really exciting stuff. Um, is there anything you'd like to incorporate into your future research? Well, something that, that my colleagues and I are particularly interested in at the moment is, is iridescence, which is, is quite familiar in not just things like peacocks and hummingbirds, but particularly um, many species of insect have these vivid colors which change with the angle of, of viewing. It's, it's created by structures in the cuticle of the insect um, bending light in different ways and it's quite easy to see how iridescence might be important in in conspicuous displays and again we think of the peacock's tail but many many species of insect both sexes are identical and mm -hmm. and iridescently colored and there's even examples of, of chrysalises and caterpillars that are iridescent so clearly that's not a mating signal mm -hmm. So we've been trying to investigate whether iridescence can actually work as, as camouflage, which is a bit paradoxical. But one thing that is key to iridescence is that the color changes 
depending on the angle you're viewing it. So maybe particularly for an animal with a less complicated brain than ours, those shifting color boundaries represent a, an inconsistent signal, which might make it hard to identify shape and recognize our prey as something good to eat. So again, that's, that's sort of started off from an, an observation in natural history. Why are there all these shiny beetles yeah. and both males and females look identical? To then pursuing some some experiments both in the field uh, and in the lab yeah that's really really cool i'm particular. i love entomology so mm. understanding why that would you know come about is really interesting in itself um what are some of your most proudest professional achievements and why well i think actually one of the things i'm most proud of was winning award an award a few years back for mentoring in science it, it was award um, given by by the scientific journal nature and, and a, a government research agency too and the reason i'm proud of it is i was put forward by ex-students uh, for this so for helping their their careers as young scientists so that, that's that's really rewarding obviously doing the science itself is, is great <laughs> yeah. fun but actually feeling that i've helped the careers of other people too is something i'm quite proud of oh definitely i think i think you know from being a student myself we're definitely one of our favorite lectures of all time <laughs> um so you've also done the uh, publication arrive guidelines for reporting animal research and it's been cited like over two thousand times why do you think that this is needed and how do you think it's going to improve the reporting output of research? Yeah, this, in a sense, um, grew out of a, a, my nerdy side, which <laughs> is a, an interest in, in statistics and, and training people in, in better use of statistics and data. Uh, and many years ago, I, I, I got involved with um, one of the smaller government research councils, which funds research on uh, reducing and refining and replacing animals in, in research, mainly biomedical research, mm. but looking for, for better ways to do science so that not so many animals are needed and animals don't suffer as much. Uh, and that organization, the NC3Rs, identified a big problem in the way that a lot of biomedical research was being reported with particularly insufficient detail to really understand exactly what the experimental designs were, um, how the data had been analyzed and whether they'd been analyzed in the most appropriate way. So the NC3Rs convened a group that, that I was one of, of, of many people involved to put forward a set of reporting guidelines of really what needs to go into a scientific paper so that it can both be assessed properly as to how robust the findings are and and replicated which is another important criterion of good science is that you can replicate the results so those those guidelines have been widely adopted by research funders universities all the top scientific journals so although that's not my main area of research again it was a very nice positive contribution that i felt i was able to make and something I feel quite strongly about. Those oh, guidelines yeah. are currently being revised and updated right now. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. That is, yeah. Um, and what do you enjoy most about lecturing or, and being a supervisor at Bristol? 
Well, there is this sort of caricature of uh, a university professor who sees students as a nuisance and <laughs> getting in the way of research. And I really don't recognise that in, in my colleagues here. I think, although we all do very diverse research, one thing that brings us all together is we teach a common degree. And one of the great things about being a university teacher is you get to tell people about the research you're interested in and by and large they're interested in it too uh, so you're talking about what you find exciting to an audience who also enjoys biology mm. and they themselves are going to go on and be the next generation of biologists so that really is a very positive side of this this job and what's more every year it, it's new enthusiastic students mm, yeah definitely definitely um and have you travelled a lot for your research? Um, my students tend to go to more exotic places <laughs> than I do. I mean, certainly since, since starting a family, that sort of tied me to the UK uh, more. You do get to travel a lot to go to international conferences. So this year, for example, I'm off, off to Chicago where there's a big behaviour conference. Next year, there's a, a big conference in, in Melbourne and Australia. So... Uh, Conferences certainly allow me to travel uh -oh. a lot, but uh, I don't spend as much time in the field as, as maybe I would have done 20 years ago. What is the hardest thing you have to deal with as, you know, being a researcher? Administration, <laughs> right. Yes, so um, I think none, none of us got into this job because we like filling out forms mm. and, and dealing with bureaucracy. It's necessary for the university to function, but it, I don't think it, I or any of my colleagues see it as fun. No, for sure. Yeah, I can understand that. And finally, what do you think is the biggest take-home message, message for people or undergrads studying biology at Bristol? Well, um, just over three, three years ago, when David Attenborough opened the new building that we're in, um, at that time, I was, I was demonstrating a, a practical class for the new first year. So it was their first week in university. They were all rather annoyed because just in the atrium outside the lab, David Attenborough was opening the building. Mm. And this, for many of them, was their scientific hero, just as uh, 50 years ago, he was my scientific hero. But after he'd done his official speeches, he came into the lab and got all the students around him and he said look the future of the planet is in your hands it's biologists who are being asked to solve many of the biggest problems facing humanity to do with climate change producing more food dealing with emerging diseases so i think that's my most important message to the next generation of biologists is really we're all depending on you to save <laughs> this planet no pressure. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ines. It's been, uh, it's been great to have you on the show, and I really, really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, that's that. That's it for this week. Uh, I hope you enjoyed Professor Innes Cuthill and uh, his sort of introduction into how he got into biology from a young age. Uh, I think it's really inspiring. 
Um, yeah, so look forward to future episodes. If you enjoy the show and you want to hear more, please support me by just simply sharing it or discussing it or whatever you want to do because it uh, really goes a long way and I really, really appreciate it. So uh, till next time, thanks, guys.